I'm certainly thankful to be here. I'm glad to be here. I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the very first verse of the New Testament today. Uh, only one verse, but um, so much in there. And we will only be able to scratch the surface of this text. Uh, but by God's grace, I pray we will see uh, this royal uh, statement that the king has come and his name is Jesus. Uh, my mother... Uh, was a biology teacher at our local high school. And I remember when I was around 10, 11 years old, uh, she got a poster in the mail that was of this uh, three-dimensional image, right? It was a stereogram. I believe we have an, a, an example of this that Eric's going to put up on the screen of what a stereogram is. If you remember these things, you, anybody remember these? You, you stare at them, and if you look at them right, this like three-dimensional picture pops out, right? And I remember when my mom got this uh, a poster on the wall. I didn't think twice about it. I walked by it many times. I never gave it a second thought. I thought it was just this kind of weird-looking picture on the wall. And then one day, I actually stopped to look at it. And in the process of looking at it, I began to see what was really there. And, and, and a whole new world opened up, a world of beauty and a world of wonder, and a world of amazement that was right there the whole time. I had just never taken the time to look at it. And when we come to the first verse of the New Testament, I don't know about you, but I know in my life I've had something very similar. Now we get to, to Matthew's gospel, and he opens up with this genealogy, and we kind of come to it and say, I don't really know what that even means, or what this is really the point of this, and we kind of just brush by it, and I've brushed by it many times in my life, and over the last uh, five, six years, as God has opened my heart more fully to understand the Scripture, I've come to see this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Because there's so much packed into this that Matthew is doing. And there is a reason why Matthew's gospel opens the New Testament. And there's a reason why he opens with this line. And so, uh, by God's grace, we're going to think through some of these things today. And we're going to see the good news that Jesus is king. I have a, a rhythm to the way I preach. I like to read my text, and I like to stop for a word of prayer. Uh, because our text is so short, I want to invite you to read with me, okay? So we're going to all read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, out loud, together. It'll be on the screen. There it is. And, and then we're going to pause for a word of prayer. So let's read this text together. Let's pause for prayer. Let's read together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your love and for your grace to us in Christ Jesus, our King. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds today. Deepen our affections for the things of Christ. Transform our hearts so we might love and live like Jesus. And so, Father, as we open your word, by the power of your spirit, reveal to us your son. And may he increase, and may we decrease. In Christ's name we pray all things. Amen. Amen. As we launch into the New Testament... And if we launch into this opening verse of Matthew's gospel, if we're going to get what Matthew's driving home, 
then we need to at least be familiar with the story of the Old Testament, right? And we don't have enough time right now to go through the entire story of the Old Testament. But a few things we can say. Uh, Peter Gentry, Stephen Wellam are two individuals who have helped me in their writing uh, understand how the covenants of the Old Testament all form the backbone of the Scripture. And they push the narrative forward. And when we look through the covenants of the Old Testament, we see how they narrow in their focus. So, for example, the, the, the covenant with Noah, God covenants to, to, to restore and to redeem creation. It's a very broad uh, creation itself is going to be redeemed and restored. The covenant with Abraham narrows into humanity. All of humanity is going to be blessed. And then it narrows in on a, on a particular people group in the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19. And then it narrows down in its most uh, uh, simple and, and clear uh, Davidic covenant of, of, of honing in on one individual, a king who's going to come from the line of David. And all of these promises of restoration of redemption, of renewal, of God redeeming the cosmos. It's going to come through this one individual who's going to come through the line of David. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Old Testament begins to look for this. Where is this king? Is he coming? And when we read through the narrative of Samuel, read through the narrative of kings, we see that he has not arrived yet. In fact, things kind of fall off. The, the wheels fall off the bus, so to speak. And so God's people are ultimately exiled from their land. They find themselves in uh, Babylon in 586 uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And even while they are in exile, God continues to make these messianic promises through the mouths of the prophets. And so, for example, just a few of these from the book of Isaiah alone. Isaiah chapter 9, this is what we, we often refer to as, as a Christmas text. Uh, it's, it's much broader and it's much bigger. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is giving, and the government should be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, there's that king reference. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We see other messianic promises such as that of Isaiah 11, that this coming king is going to be empowered by God's spirit. Isaiah 11, chapter 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. There is this king who is coming to establish justice, to bring peace, to bring renewal, to bring refreshment, to redeem creation itself. We see later in Isaiah, such as Isaiah 43, he's going to redeem and restore the nation of Israel. We see in Isaiah 49 that it's going to be a kingdom for the nations. So this king is coming not just to reign over an individual people group. He is coming to reign over the world. And he is going to call the allegiance and the fidelity of the nations to himself. As we follow in the narrative... After these promises, as they're in exile, 
the, the southern kingdom is allowed to come back into the land. This is getting into the story of Ezra and the story of Nehemiah. They're able to rebuild the temple, although it's not as good as the former temple. Uh, they're able to reestablish the community. But yet, even in their land, they're without this king, still looking and waiting for this king. And in Nehemiah 9, verse 36, we see that they are still slaves in their own land. Where is the king? Is he coming? And from a historical, chronological timeline, this is where the Old Testament ends. It's with God's people in their land without a king, slaves in their own land. And you can imagine what that would be like. So you can imagine the questions that begin to run through their heads. Where is the king? Is he really coming? Is God really going to keep his promises? And this is where the book of Chronicles comes in. And it's such a great help. And I've been leading a class on Wednesday nights through the book of the Bible. And one of the things we've been saying is that we're going to make Chronicles great again. Because the book of Chronicles is awesome. And yet for many of us, if we're honest, we have a tendency to fly right by it. Particularly if we've just read Samuel and Kings because we get to Chronicles and we think this is just the same thing all over again. But it's not. The chronicler is doing something. The book of Chronicles is written and collected at the end of this period as Israel's waiting, is the king coming? And what the chronicler is doing is looking back over the history of Israel's kings, particularly through the line of David, and it's picking up all the good parts. And the idea of Chronicles is to be a message of hope for people who feel hopeless. The message of Chronicles is for people who feel like perhaps God's not going to come through. It's a message of perseverance. It's a message of, of steadfastness. Keep your head up. Our God keeps his word. He is a God of covenant faithfulness. And Chronicles is the original uh, last book of the Old Testament. And it served as an ending note of hope. But when we get to Chronicles, uh, we, we run into particularly the first uh, nine, ten chapters, just a bunch of genealogies. But I want you to hear this, and I want you to see this. The structure of Chronicles opens with genealogy and then a story of royalty. And Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, guess what, how he structures his book? With genealogy and a story of royalty. And in this, Matthew is making a point. He's picking up these themes from Chronicles. And he opens his book with a genealogy that directly connects to the son of David. And in this one line, in the first words of the New Testament, Matthew is screaming out to us, the king has come. God has come through on all of his promises. The promise of redemption, the promise of restoration, the promise of renewal, the promise of forgiveness, all of these things were going to come through a king, and guess what? He has come, and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. And his kingdom is one that will have no boundary, and it will have no end. It is an eternal kingdom forever and forever. And Matthew makes these connections for us immediately. As we open our New Testament, this is why I love this text. There's so much packed into this that Matthew's driving home. 
The king has come. His name is Jesus. He comes from the line of David, and he comes to rule the nations. And this raises a great question for us. What does it mean to rule? That's a great question for us to consider. What does it mean for a king to rule? What typically comes to our mind when we think about this word ruling is something along the lines of self-dominance. We could think about Daniel chapter 3, the story of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar who builds this golden image, right? And he tells everybody there, so you're either going to bow down and worship this golden image or I'm going to kill you, right? I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. But that, that's, that's, that's leading, that's, that's ruling with self-dominance, right? But is that really what it means to rule? I find one of the most helpful verses in the Bible to help us think about what it means to rule is actually in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And you look at Genesis chapter 2, 15, and we're reminded in Genesis 1, as God creates humanity in his image, and he gives his image bearers dominion or rule. They are to rule creation on behalf of God. What does that look like for them? Genesis 2.15 tells us that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. So ruling for Adam to exercise his dominion, to exercise his rule, means he is to work and to keep creation. Now to work it means to serve. To rule is to serve for the good of the ones that you are ruling over. It's not self-dominance. It's not self-exaltation. The best rulers will be humble kings who look out for the good of their people. It's to serve, and it's also to safeguard, to keep it, to help it flourish into God's potential. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus picks up on some of these themes. We find this very interesting a uh, story where the, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, they want, uh, she wants her, her sons to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand within his kingdom. That makes all the other disciples mad, and they're all fighting with one another. And in Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus says, and listen, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Do you hear that? Self-dominance. They rule with self-dominance. They think that ruling means to my way or the highway. Jesus says in verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What does it mean to rule? To serve. And what does Jesus say he's come to do? To serve. And how he's going to do that? By giving his life as a ransom for many. King Jesus rules, but he's not a ruler like the kingdoms of this world. He's a king who looks out for the good of his people. This is why it is good news that Jesus is king. Because he rules for the good of his people. And he lays down his life for his sheep. You and I have done absolutely nothing to deserve our salvation. We are all sinners, willingly who have all rebelled against a holy and a righteous God. And therefore, left to ourselves, we, no, we deserve nothing but God's eternal condemnation. 
And yet we have a king who has come to serve our greatest need. And he does it by giving his life. And Jesus' crucifixion in the biblical narrative is portrayed as his enthronement. We're reminded that he's clothed in purple. We're reminded he has a crown of thorns. We're reminded that it says king of the Jews above his head. And we are reminded that he is lifted up on high. But it's not on a seat of comfort. It's on a cross of shame. And in this, we see the heart of God. Sacrificial care. Serving our greatest need. Dying in our place. Receiving what we deserve. Taking the curse so that we could receive the blessings. Being crushed so that we could be healed. Bleeding out so that we can have the forgiveness of our sin. This is our king, King Jesus, who rules for the good of his people. And he dies in the stead of ruined sinners. And they put him in a tomb. And they thought that they had finally stopped the rebel rouser, this guy running around. But they were wrong. Because a few days later, our king rose victorious over the grave. And we pledge our fidelity to the crucified and resurrected king who has all authority in heaven and earth. How much? All. Every square space of existence, Jesus is king, period. He does these things for the good of his people so that we were who were in bondage of sin could be set free. And because of his sacrificial death, because of his victorious resurrection, those who submit their life to the king come under the rule of King Jesus and receive the kingdom benefits like forgiveness of our sin, like being set free from the bondage of sin, like being adopted into his family, like being justified before a holy God, not because of what we have done, but because of the imputed righteousness of our king. He gives to his people. And in Christ, we have, we have justification before God. Sanctification through the power of his spirit and a future hope that the king is coming and the restoration of all things. This is all because of King Jesus. And he is enthroned. And he calls his people to come into his kingdom and to follow him. And so we have been served, have we not, church? And in a large way. But the king also safeguards his people. And so when we look through his life, and when we think through his teachings, it's imperative that we see how these things are for our good. Because it, it is inevitable. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to encounter his teachings, and they are going to be challenging. And they're going to be uncomfortable. And that's good for us, because you know what's comfortable for us? Sin. I'm good at it, right? I'm a pro at sin. I'm very good at it. And Jesus wants to lead us into the way of light. And so he challenges his people. And so he's going to teach us things like seek first the kingdom of God. And there's a lot implied there. 
But certainly at one of the most foundational levels, it means that we are not seeking the kingdom of self any longer. That we are not trying to usurp God and define good and evil ourselves. But that we are submitting our hearts and our lives to God's way. And living under God's rule in God's kingdom. And so we learn uh, through seeking the kingdom, seeking first the kingdom, making this a priority in our life, that humility is to be a defining mark in our lives. That because of sin, because of our pride, we were trying to be the king of our life. And guess what? We weren't any good at it. (laughs) But he is. And so we submit to the king. And we seek first his kingdom. And we see how that is a good thing for us. Pride wants to crush us and control us and damage us. Humility is the way of the kingdom. We're reminded of Jesus himself who defines his own heart as gentle and humble. And if that is the heart of the king, then it should be the heart of his people. One of the defining marks of Jesus' people is humility. Because sin is all about the exaltation of ourself. Following Jesus is leading us into a new way of being servants. So Jesus calls his people to seek first the kingdom. Is that always easy? Is it always comfortable? Is it always good? Yes. After that, I mean, immediately after that, Jesus tells us to not be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. This is the king saying this to his people. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Does anybody find that hard? I do. My wife is uh, pregnant. We'll have our third daughter in uh, six weeks, hopefully. Thank you. You know, between, uh, between us and the Wellivers and the doses, we are trying to convert this into an all-girl church. We're trying. Uh, we've we got some ways to go, but we're, we're giving it our best. But our, um, our first daughter came two weeks early, and our second daughter came three weeks early. So we, we tr- we're trending that way, right? And our, our, our second daughter came three weeks early. She spent five nights in the NICU, and it was, it was really hard. And so, like, right this second... Our family, we're in that six-week window with her pregnancy. And being anxious about tomorrow is very easy for us. It's very easy. But Jesus is trying to show us something when he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. He's trying to show us that we cannot be fully present in the present if we're concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't live out the fullness of the kingdom life today if our lives are preoccupied with what's coming. And so he calls his people into a lifestyle of trust. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be wrapped up with what's coming. Be present in the present. Trust him. Seek the kingdom. Don't seek yourself. Seek God's kingdom. Don't be worried about tomorrow. Focus on the day. Are these easy teachings? No, but are they good for us? Yes. And I pray that we see these things. Jesus is going to tell us to forgive people. This is the king telling his people, forgive people. And we only have one option. It's either obedience or disobedience to that. Does anybody find that challenging? (laughs) Yeah. 
You know, that's, that's not my initial reaction is to forgive. My initial heart is to retaliate. Right? But Jesus is trying to show us something for his people to, to live in the kingdom and to be present in the kingdom. Then we need to have this, this type of bitterness in our hearts uprooted. It's not healthy. It's not good for us to walk around holding grudges. And that's very challenging, right? I would imagine in a room this size, with the amount of people we have, that there are some people in here who have really been hurt and violated. And to hear the phrase, hey, you should forgive people, like that's hard, right? I mean, that's tough. But I pray that we would hear the graciousness of Jesus' words when, when he says these things. He's saying to his people, it's not good for you to hold these things in, to learn to forgive. I heard a guy one time say, uh, withholding forgiveness, holding a grudge, is like drinking poison and hoping that it hurts the other person. (laughs) Jesus wants to to liberate our hearts from the the disease of pride, the disease of, of bitterness, right? And so he calls his people into this lifestyle. Jesus is going to teach us that we should love our enemies. This is the king, once again, saying these things to his people. Love your enemies. Is that hard? Is that uncomfortable? Probably a little bit. But once again, Jesus loves us too much to let us stay with this ongoing hatred in our hearts. And the more we we rest in his grace and we treasure his gospel the more our hearts are made new so that we do learn how to love our enemies the way God loved his, namely you and me, who were rebelling against him. But Christ Jesus took up the cross to restore that relationship. This is what our king has done. Jesus is going to call us to be into a life of generosity. Is that always easy for us? What we typically want to do is is get more stuff, right? More things. I get a new car. Well, I need another new car. Well, I need another new house. I need another this. I need another that. And we want to store it and we store it and we store it. Jesus says that his people, life in the kingdom looks more like generosity. Learning how to look out for the good of others over our own, even at an expense to ourself. This is what it looks like to love sacrificially, to love the way Jesus has first loved us. He is the king who serves and safeguards his people. This is Matthew's opening line. The king has come. His name is Jesus. God has fulfilled the promises. He's come to rule for the good of his people. He's going to preach and teach for the safeguarding of his people. He's going to lay down his life for the redemption of his people. And we have a responsibility as kingdom people to now listen to him and follow him. And so Jesus' commands are not options that he's giving or suggestions for us to consider. It is a way of life that he has called us into. It is the kingdom way of life, to live under the rule of the king. But Jesus' kingdom has not just come, as we said, for one particular people group. And Matthew ties this in immediately, the opening line of the New Testament. When he adds the name, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham. We're reminded of the Abrahamic covenant where God chose that through this person and through this family, he's going to bless the families of the world. He's going to bless the nations, right? And Matthew has this in the opening line. The nations are on Matthew's mind in the first verse of the New Testament. And Matthew bookends his gospel with the same thing, opening and the closing. They're bookends. So when we arrive at Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, I have all of the authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of heaven and earth. He is the king of everywhere. And what is the decree that the king gives? He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Going to the nations is not an add-on to Christianity. It is a summons by the king. That there are nations out there who do not know King Jesus. And they are walking in darkness. And we have a responsibility as ambassadors of Christ to go to the nations. To proclaim the good news that Jesus is king. And to call the nations to surrender their allegiance to him. And when they do... They come into the family. They come under the fold of grace. And God redeems and restores, and he brings together this beautiful family of all the nations, of all shapes and sizes and colors. It's just beautiful tapestry of God's kingdom. And so we go to the nations. We go to the nations because we have a heart to exalt our king. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess and we should start now let's go to the nations let's go proclaim the gospel of king jesus let's give for the nations let's pray for the nations let's be mindful of the nations for the king's glory and let's also go to the nations for their good there is only one hope in this world And this world is very broken, is it not? And it's very hard, is it not? And there are trials and there are struggles of all kinds. And everyone is looking for an answer. And there's only one. And his name is Jesus. And so we go to the nations. He has first come to us. And now we go to them. I'm I'm a seminary grad from Southeastern And uh, Dr. Aiken used to always say, uh, we go because he came, right? He has come. The king has come. And he has lived the life that we failed to live. And he has died the death that we deserve to die. And he has risen victorious over the grave. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has been enthroned to the king, as king, the right hand of the Father, ruling for the good of his people. And he has commissioned us to go to the nations. And when we have a heart for the nations, we have a heart that mirrors that of our king. The nations are not an add-on. The nations are the goal, exalting the king among all people. Jesus is king. It's the opening line of the New Testament. It's riddled throughout the entire pages of the biblical narrative. 
He is the king, and he is a saving king. He is a redeeming king. He is a healing king. He is a restoring king. He is a humble king. He is a foot-washing king. And we are called now to be a foot-washing people and a humble people who give our lives for the good of the nations and for the glory of our kingdom.